0: Nearly 2 million American adults identify as transgender. Although gender-affirming care, including surgeries, hormonal therapy, can be life-saving for transgender people, access varies with income and with insurance coverage. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Daphna Strumsa, a clinical lecturer in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Strumsa has co-authored a perspective article about access to health care for transgender people. Dr. Strumzer, in your perspective article, you discussed the case of Toomey versus State of Arizona, which challenges whether a health plan for state employees can categorically exclude coverage of gender-affirming surgery. So how common is it for health plans to exclude such care? We do
1: have some data on that, but certainly from clinical experience, this is pretty common. And it happens through a variety of mechanisms. Some insurances have kind of a blanket exclusion on coverage of transgender or gender-affirming related care, which is not in line with Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. Um, That's the non-discrimination section. But other insurances have other ways of exclusion of gender-affirming care, including through coverage denials through a variety of mechanisms, which many physicians are familiar with in other realms as well, that is a pretty common way that insurances exclude transgender people from being able to access their care.
0: So why is access to this kind of care so important for transgender people? What effect does it have on their health and their safety?
1: So we know that gender-affirming care can be life-saving in that it has a major affects positive effects on improving the mental health and overall social functioning of transgender people, including decrease in rates of depression and suicidality. So it can be life-saving in that regard. Um, some gender affirming care can also provide safety for transgender people and help them staying safe from violence, which is often enacted against transgender people in that it enables them to be perceived as their affirmed gender by society and then help prevent them from being victims of violence, which is unfortunately very common against transgender people. It also, because gender-affirming care is such an important point of contact between many transgender people and their providers, ensuring that transgender people have access to gender-affirming care also enables or opens a door for many opportunities for other health care, including preventive care measures. So, for example, when my patients come to me for gender-affirming hormone prescriptions, that's the opportunity to get them a flu shot, um, make sure they're up to date on their other vaccinations, on their pap smears, et cetera, which often transgender people avoid other forms of care because of experiences of discrimination and fear of having these negative interactions with the medical system.
0: So in fact, how often do transgender people have access to knowledgeable providers? How many doctors perform gender-affirming surgeries, for example, and is that kind of accessibility similar throughout the country, or does it vary a lot by region?
1: So it, of course, like many other things in healthcare in this country, varies by region to a huge extent. In major metropolitan areas, there is much more access to gender-affirming providers, including gender-affirming general practitioners from primary care providers to providers in any specialty or subspecialty who are just knowledgeable, fluent in caring for transgender people in general. But specifically for gender-affirming hormonal care and for gender-affirming surgery, there is quite a small number of these providers. They are growing. Um, There are several programs across the country that are working hard to train surgeons in gender-affirming surgery, including here with us at the University of Michigan, and a bunch of other places across the country. But it's still definitely very difficult, and certainly people in rural areas travel long distances if, again, they are able to access this care in terms of, from a financial perspective, and they have the safety and the ability to find these providers, which not all transgender people have.
0: Looking again at the legal side of this, you talk in your article about the recent Supreme Court ruling in Bostock versus Clayton County. Could you talk about that decision and how it might influence the upcoming Arizona case and any similar cases related to employer sponsored coverage?
1: So, in Bostock versus Clayton County, the Supreme Court basically made a landmark decision that held that. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects employees against discrimination if that discrimination is because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. That decision was based on the fact that, as Justice Neil Gorsuch noted, you can't discriminate against a person for being gay or for being trans without discriminating against them based on their sex. And discrimination based on sex is prohibited by Title VII. And so the implications of that, both trans people and LGBTQ and other gender and sexual minority people are protected in the workplace from employment based discrimination, and that should enable Professor Toomey from the University of Arizona um, to receive protection or support for his case. And in his case, um, the state of Arizona's health insurance categorically denies gender-affirming surgeries. They do not cover that. And he is requesting or needing a gender-affirming hysterectomy, and hysterectomies are covered for other indications. And so his claim is that this is discrimination based on his gender identity, hence sex-based discrimination, which is the Supreme Court has now stated prohibited according to Title VII. So this opens the door to all trans people for increased protection and increased access through their health insurance, if it's employer-based insurance, but doesn't necessarily affect people whose access to health care is not through an employer-based insurance.
0: So in fact, what does the situation look like for transgender people who have Medicaid or Medicare coverage?
1: So for people under Medicaid, Medicare, the main issues are, so of course, there are, there are the implications of the Affordable Care Act, first of all, in terms of increased access to Medicaid for many people, including a larger proportion of the trans community. Trans people tend to have higher rates of workplace discrimination, hence underemployment, tends more likely to be on Medicaid, higher rates of chronic illness, so uh, often on Medicare as well. And so for people who are covered through CMS, Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act was interpreted by the Obama administration as protecting against discrimination based on gender identity. The current outgoing administration has had a different take on that section and a different interpretation. And they passed through a new rule, also quite recently, revising the regulation and removing transgender protection. But right now there is an injunction blocking that new rule. So things are still up in the air for people in terms of protection against discrimination when they're covered through CMS.
0: In that regard, what do you think... Joe Biden's win in the presidential election on the one hand, and the changes in the composition of the Supreme Court on the other, are going to mean for the future of transgender rights in the United States?
1: So I think there is a shorter term and a longer term perspective that we need to take. Of course, in the shorter term, a president, regardless of Senate control, has some power to enact rules, regulations including regulations such as the interpretation or how to interpret Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, which is still standing law. Of course, that in itself is under threat currently and will likely hit the Supreme Court in its current form and may well be undermined by decisions in the Supreme Court, but there are legislative ways to fix that. Uh, Several are available. So that would need legislative changes. And that also, of course, depends on what the Senate eventually looks like. But certainly in the long run, the legislative bodies have a lot of power to protect transgender people and ensure that they have access to care. That can be as part of a bigger overhaul of healthcare, including plans for increasing access to Medicare, Medicare for all, et cetera. Those can certainly enable more trans people to get access to care. But I think that the big kind of long-term perspective is that there needs to be legislation that ensures that any sex discrimination is seen as the Supreme Court saw in the Bostock v. Clayton case, that sex discrimination clearly includes also discrimination against any person based on gender identity or sexual orientation. And that will enable not only increased access to care and decreased discrimination by insurance companies, but also other safety opportunities for transgender people who have been undermined by the current administration in a variety of settings, including education, housing, etc. So I think regardless of how the Supreme Court rules in any particular case, including the Affordable Care Act, the legislative body, and potentially president, regardless of the Senate control, have a lot of opportunities to move forward and to ensure the safety and health of transgender people.
0: So finally, can you talk a bit about what you're essentially proposing, a new anti-discrimination law? What would that kind of law include, and how likely is it to become a reality?
1: I think the likelihood of a reality, of course, depends on things such as the runoff elections in Georgia, and on the long-term questions on bipartisan work in the Senate and in Congress, which of course is kind of a bigger question. I think it is time for anti-discrimination law to move to protect LGBTQ people in a broad way as it has moved over the decades To cover other minorities and to ensure that while LGBT people are not considered a protected minority or a protected class by law, we learn to understand that sex discrimination does not only refer to the sex assigned at birth and gender as stated by sex assigned at birth of people and to firing them, for example but that it has much broader implications and that gender identity and expression should be protected broadly from healthcare to employment, to military service, to housing, to all these other realms, education, so that LGBT people can thrive fully in society and not worry about being discriminated against because of who they are. And that will, of course, ensure that we can also then work as physicians, as practitioners, to provide them with the health care they need and deserve as everyone else.
0: Thank you, Dr. Strumsa.